Hi, everyone, and welcome to MedFem's podcast on sex-related differences in the experience of acute coronary syndrome. Today, we will explore differences in presentation in terms of symptoms and also biases in diagnosis and treatment of men and women experiencing acute coronary syndrome. In this podcast, we have invited cardiologist Professor Clara Chow, a leading expert in cardiovascular disease prevention, to discuss this topic with us. We are immensely grateful that Professor Chow has generously volunteered her time to add professional insight to our discussion. My name is Juliette Hammond-Durant and I'm here today with Sarah Robinson. We're both medical students at the University of Melbourne and are on the committee of a student-run organisation called MedFem. MedFem is a female and non-binary collective for MD students that aims to improve the well-being of female and gender diverse medical students, doctors and the population at large by holding networking and educational events, sharing resources and advocating for change. As we are recording this podcast in Melbourne and Sydney, we'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We'd also like to preface our discussion by providing some definitions of key terms we will use. Here at MedFem, we acknowledge that although the words gender and sex are often used interchangeably, they are different. Sex refers to biological differences such as in genitalia and genetics, whereas gender is related to a person's intrinsic identity. Thus, we will aim to use the term sex as most studies divide research participants on this basis. Furthermore, we'd like to acknowledge that sex and gender are not binary concepts and that both exist on a complex spectrum. However, once again, most research in this area is based on males and females presenting to hospital, so we aren't able to discuss intersex as a category as part of this podcast. Furthermore, in this discussion, we will mostly use the term acute coronary syndrome, which encompasses myocardial infarctions, both STEMI and non-STEMI, and unstable angina. When we think about recognising symptoms of acute coronary syndrome, our minds usually jump to crushing central chest pain that may radiate to the left arm or to the jaw. Community education about heart attack symptoms teaches people to seek emergency help if they notice these symptoms. However, it is extremely important for us as medical students to know more about the variety of symptoms that can signal an episode of acute coronary syndrome rather than relying on pattern recognition. Chest pain is by far the most common symptom of acute coronary syndrome reported by men and women alike. However, among those people who don't experience chest pain, known as an atypical presentation, a greater number are women. That is to say, chest pain in acute coronary syndrome is the most common symptom for both sexes, but women are more likely to experience atypical symptoms. Some of these symptoms can include chest tightness, dyspnea, back or shoulder blade pain, palpitations, nausea and or vomiting, sweating, anxiety, indigestion or heartburn, and lightheadedness or dizziness. Absence of chest pain is a strong predictor for missing the diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome and leads to subsequent delays in appropriate treatment. For instance, a study found that patients having myocardial infarctions without chest pain had around twice the short-term mortality compared with those experiencing chest pain, 
likely due to delayed presentation, diagnosis and less aggressive treatment. Today, we are hoping to discuss these sex-related biases in recognising and diagnosing acute coronary syndrome with Professor Clara Chow. Professor Chow is a renowned cardiologist who is the academic director of the Westmead Applied Research Centre, Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. She is the program director of community-based cardiac services at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. She currently holds honorary appointments as the Charles Perkins Centre Westmead Academic Co-Director and is the President of the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand. Professor Chow's research focuses on the prevention of cardiovascular disease, innovation in the delivery of cardiovascular care and the evaluation of digital health interventions. She has expertise in the design, delivery and implementation of clinical trials. Her PhD from the University of Sydney was in cardiovascular epidemiology and international public health, and her postdoc from McMaster University, Canada, was in clinical trials and cardiac imaging. She is supported by a New South Wales Health Clinician Scientist Fellowship. Welcome to Professor Chow. Thank you so much for meeting with us today to discuss this important topic. Um, if we could just start off, um, could, would you be able to talk to us about some common symptoms that you've seen in women who are having heart attacks? So I must still say that, um, you know, chest pain is not an uncommon symptom in women presenting with uh, heart attack. Um, and it is true that, you know, women may... Um, express themselves differently about their symptoms and perhaps that is a more important nuance than anything else. But still many women will experience uh, chest pain um, at presentation. Saying that, they also may present with other things. It, it might be as nondescript as weakness, feeling fatigued, tired, something's not right in the last few days, feeling a little bit dizzy, um, feeling when they go do things that something's limiting them. Um, those sort of uh, descriptions are all pretty common uh, when it comes to eliciting information about whether they're having a heart attack. Sometimes the couple of days preceding um, gives us more sort of inkling of what's going on, as well as the actual acute symptoms at the time of presentation. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, I was on call on the weekend and, you know, the usual thing, uh, a number of people with dyspectic myocardial infarction came in and I asked them all, have you had chest pain? And a number of them said, no, I didn't have any chest pain. Did you have any other symptoms? Oh, yeah, like it was like someone was squeezing on my chest. It, it, it was taking my breath away. It was... It was really like somebody was holding me. But they very clearly said no, they didn't have chest pain. Right. So the thing is, I mean, that's a bit of medicine, isn't it? You often mm -hmm. um, cannot just have a closed-end question because to many other people that would have been chest pain, having someone squeeze on your chest <laughs> yeah. and all that sort of thing would be chest pain. But... Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it's quite common to have a categorical no to the have you got chest pain question. 
you know, that might even speak to them not really wanting to have chest pain. They, because they think that if I say yes, I'm telling you that I think I'm having a heart attack. And that's the other thing I think that's an important nuance here. Women don't think they're having a heart attack. And part of that is because women are less likely to think they will get heart disease, are less likely to think they're going to die of heart disease. So we know it's still, you know, right up there in terms of leading causes of death amongst women. But if you ask women, they are more concerned and, and not unreasonably so that they might get breast cancer or other um, more women associated. Well, only women can, well, no, that's not absolutely true, but obviously more women get breast cancer than men get breast cancer. But, um, you know, they're more likely to think of those things in their life than they are to think of heart attack. So thank you so much for that answer and for clarifying, you know, I thought it was really interesting in particular how women like subjective interpretation of their symptoms can be different as well um so have you ever seen women with myocardial infarcts who were misdiagnosed and did they know that they were likely having a heart attack at the time yeah so so misdiagnosis um hmm. so i've certainly seen women that present late um with myocardial infarction thinking they've had something else um, but it's, it's, I, have, I have to admit, uh, that's, that's the more common situation that they don't think they're having um, a heart attack, so they haven't presented, and then they present late, and that's also borne out in the data. Now, I have seen women that have presented again with um, angina, and that's not necessarily a heart attack, that I think have quite clearly got angina but have not been diagnosed as having coronary or disease or having anything to do with their heart um, and have been mislabeled or miscategorized as probably it's not the heart when it probably was the heart right and 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 I and I do think that's a combination of well yeah there's all sorts of different reasons but Definitely, I think misdiagnosis is um, a very real thing um, and that women can uh, present with symptoms that, you know, maybe uh, weren't typical or maybe weren't appropriately elicited and maybe that's part of the reason, but it's definitely a two-way street. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to think as health providers more clearly and openly about coronary disease. Um, being a cause of symptoms in women. So you've mentioned that sometimes women are less likely to consider that they may be having a heart attack. And I'm really interested to think about why this might be. So do you think that perhaps this could be explained by maybe a lack of community education or instead that community education tends to spread the message that males are actually more likely to have heart attacks than females? Um, than women, I should say. Um, what do you think about this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, um, raising awareness amongst both men and women and, and all of us, the health professions, is important. Um, it is a social norming that has definitely occurred in this space that is influencing um, both women presenting and um, sort of health professionals not 
um, assume, you know, well, not um, diagnosing probably um, these conditions. I think um, definitely raising the awareness of this amongst uh, women broadly is important. I, I think it, 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 while we talk about male being a risk factor, it, it is maybe a risk factor for them getting it earlier um, and, and that still carries out in the data. But, I mean, everybody's living longer. Um, yeah. So, you know, we might say uh, before men present at 55, women present at 65. Um, and yes, that is borne out in the data. But it doesn't mean that women won't get a heart attack. Um, it also doesn't mean younger women don't have heart disease. I mean, unfortunately, there are some things that are occurring in our community that's adverse in terms of lifestyle risk factors and possibly know that smoking is, is definitely falling quite clearly in, in all age categories of men, but it hasn't been as clear in um, younger women. Yeah, that is a really worrying aspect, I think, particularly as those women age. Um, and kind of tying back to one of our previous questions, when acute coronary syndrome is missed, um, what other conditions are these women perhaps diagnosed with instead until it's realised that it was an acute coronary syndrome? Okay, well, I, I would say still a common one is reflux um, or gastroesophageal reflux where, um, you know, people talk about heartburn, they need to eat something wrong, and obviously there is clear uh, uh, severe forms of gastroesophageal, gastroesophageal reflux or ulcer disease. Yes. But other yeah. things that, um, you know, uh, women unfortunately may or may not get labelled with is um, anxiety. Um and, and, you know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be pretty anxious when you think that you might be having heart disease. I would presume most people have a level of anxiety, but I think one needs to be very cautious about um, sort of attributing all um, symptoms um, to, to something like anxiety um, when there's a potentially quite serious and treatable um, cause um, that needs to also be addressed. Uh, so maybe I, I'd say there are the common other things. There are some less common things, um, but uh, some of them are equally serious. I mean, there is still things like uh, aortic dissection, um, and uh, that's obviously a, a very serious condition can occur in, in men and women. Um, and some other uh, other things with respect to uh, pericarditis, myocarditis, chest infections, all of these things as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. it just definitely needs to be on that list to be thought of that um, heart disease, heart attack, coronary disease are all part of that. Yeah, definitely. That's like quite a wide range of things. Um, so I was wondering as well, um, so I think Sarah and I have both noticed throughout our medical degree that our medical education around myocardial infarct and just coronary disease in general is very much centred around male typical symptoms. Um, so have you noticed this as well and do you think that this focus kind of continues beyond our university degree and into sort of training uh, beyond that? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe there are typical symptoms, but everybody explains them differently. Um, yeah. And to be conscious of, of 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 letting patients talk to you and 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 trying to 
get understand that picture um, and and what that picture actually is and is it consistent with coronary disease or not? I, uh, I must say, I mean, watching and, and and I suppose you know having I work in Western Sydney. It's a, a quite a diverse uh, patient population. We have people from many mm -hmm. many different cultural backgrounds as well as obviously um, genders and um, you know. Uh, diverse settings socioeconomically, people all differently. They, but more importantly, they express themselves differently. Um, and I, I, and I, and I, and I have to think about that when uh, people talk to me. Some people will play down their symptoms amazingly, um, and it's it's me trying to work out how I can work out how important those symptoms actually are to them. Sometimes they do actually realise they are different from their normal and mm -hmm. it, it's pulling that out. Um, and others will be quite florid in their symptoms, be absolutely sure that they've got things and you've also got to be equally open-minded about that. Um, I'm not sure if I've covered all your points there. Um, that sort of... Yeah, no, I, think you, I think you did. Um, I guess... Yeah, when we were researching for this podcast, we found there were so many research papers sort of investigating these sex-related differences in different patient populations, different age groups, mm -hmm. um, but that in our degrees it's generally just lumped into a statement that women may present atypically. Um, and then, of course, that may mean that acute coronary syndrome isn't on our internalised list of differential diagnoses when someone presents with, um, like, lightheadedness or nausea or something, um, when really it would be better if it was because, obviously, it's such a significant um, diagnosis and one that needs to be, um, needs early intervention, I suppose, to bring about the best outcomes. Um so, yeah, I, I guess I'm interested um, if at any points when you've been involved in the education of recent graduates, whether you've noticed that um, maybe there's less awareness um, of these atypical symptoms or a failure to consider it as a potential diagnosis if chest pain is absent in the presenting complaint. I first must say it's great that you've become sort of conscious of that potential bias uh, in the medical ed education with respect to describing sort of symptoms that are uh, are, are typical but are actually different for, for men and women. Uh, and I think that that thing about conscious and unconscious bias um, is an important theme here. I think that... Uh, the term unconscious bias resonates for me in this area because I think we don't realise that we're being influenced by these sort of things around us and it's becoming conscious of them that then helps us sort through that. So I I, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of the medical students coming through are, are really quite open-minded and are trying to, um, you know, work things out or learn things themselves and and mm -hmm. I would encourage that to continue um i i actually think that sometimes you pick up biases all across the way some of it um you call experience and and there's a balance between developing experience um when you see a lot of patients and across time 
but you also can um, develop biases um, uh, from you know that can start with the, what you get educated in or trained about, but it also can continue depending on the experiences you do and don't have and places you do and don't work. Um, and uh, fighting against that, so to speak, or, or maintaining the balance of developing experience um, and not introducing uh, uh, biases in how to, you clinically assist patients, I, I think is more important. And maybe broadly speaking, I would suggest that medical students are more taught about those sort of things um, than they are to think, you know, these are the typical symptoms in men, these are the typical symptoms in women, these are the typical things for this and the typical, because you're right, it, there might be sort of um, what we call clinical phenotypes that are, are sort of um, more likely associated with a patient presenting with that. And you know, I can't, I cannot tell you that I would fairly confidently say that I have got a lot more experience in in, in diagnosing ischemic heart disease. I've seen many, many patients and, you know, I, 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 I think I can um, get an idea of that sort of presentation and the characteristics. But it's not necessarily in this, if, if the, each word they tell me, it, it's very much in the clinical picture. Um, and it's understanding what that clinical picture looks like and then trying to understand if that's the patient in front of you expressing that to you or you know their health provider i think mm. the challenge of of you as uh, medical students and uh growing into early career doctors how, how does one rapidly gain that experience um but yeah a <laughs> little bit yeah. non-direct question a non-direct answer there but i i, I think <laughs> I, I i encourage you to be open-minded about it mm -hmm. um rather than trying to work out your checklist Thank you so much. That was a really interesting answer. Um, I think it's so important to keep in mind that, you know, every patient is unique and that it's so helpful to go into each patient interaction without having pre-existing assumptions about, you know, their presentation or potential diagnoses. Um, so one of the other things we found when researching for this podcast is that women are significantly underrepresented in the field of cardiology. So we found that in 2018, there were only 19 female interventional cardiologists in all of Australia and New Zealand, uh, and that represents just 4.8% of the specialty. And in fact, 2019 data showed that the proportion of women in cardiology advanced training has not really changed over the last nine years, saying at only 22%. So we were wondering if you think that this tends to affect the way women's heart conditions are treated or how quickly they are diagnosed or what effects this tends to have on this issue as a whole? Yeah, look, that it is an interesting question. Um, I, I, there is actually some evidence that suggests that that might be the case, that, um, you know, departments, the emergency departments that have got a more balanced uh, representation of of, um, of men and women involved in, in treatment management and diagnosis are less likely to miss uh, diagnose um, coronary disease which uh, it was an observational study. I can't exactly remember the journal, but it resonates um, as prob possibly being true. Um, you know, that that's probably can be said of diversity in general. Uh, a more diverse uh, workforce is a more effective workforce. And, and I think definitely in, in healthcare, um, it 
also makes sense that a diverse workforce is more likely to manage a diverse patient population. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the unfortunate <laughs> uh, continuing trend that uh, we have, which in our workforce of cardiologists is, is um, I'm hoping changing. <laughs> <laughs> As you point out to me, has uh, been uh, fairly uh, uh, resilient to change uh, over a number of years. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm very uh, positive that there is quite a drive now within the profession itself to, to address this um, more uh, seriously. Um, given you know the important i i think ability of our profession to provide good health care um mm. therefore a need to be a diverse workforce um i feel <laughs> that a number of earlier career um, cardiologists coming through are very invested in making sure we make these changes mm. i um i don't think that uh you know, all professions uh, have got their ups and downs and their, um, you know, they all require, uh, you know, work and, you know, all this sort of thing. And I don't think everybody needs to be, you know, a proceduralist or a non-proceduralist. I think there's many options within cardiology um, for uh, people, you know, uh, uh, men and women to to um, do. But... Um, yeah, no, I uh, I think it is an important point. I think we need to change it, and I think it will also help our ability to provide good healthcare. Mm. Absolutely. In terms of speaking about diversity in healthcare, I think that's a really incredible point to make in that diversity in gender, also ethnicity, cultural background, all of those are factors that hopefully would make people presenting to hospital feel more um, accepted and um, as part of, as a patient or as an incoming doctor or nurse or staff member. Um, so I think that's a really great point to make. Um, I'm really interested to ask you, Professor, um, if you're comfortable to answer um, sort of a little bit about your journey and how you made it um, into cardiology um, as a specialty and what drew you towards it perhaps. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I kind of wanted to be everything at one point in time. I, I think that uh, I might have started out wanting to be um, a surgeon. Um, I, actually, I don't think I ever wanted to be an anaesthetist. Um, maybe emergency medicine for a while, maybe intensive care. Um, I think some of the things that drew me to cardiology was actually I was interested uh, actually earlier in working in rural areas and I wanted a Working in an area that had um, a general interest, and um, you know, you could provide um, general care and um, cardiology. Along with that, it's obviously a very common condition, cardiovascular diseases, and um, you know, I could see that uh, if I was a rural physician, that that could be highly relevant, um, you know, to, to to a larger patient population that I might see. So, I mean, that that was some of the early things. The other thing, uh, I suppose, is that I, I did like uh, or I was fascinated by acute medicine um, and uh, I, I, the challenges of looking after people that are really, really sick. 
um, presenting uh, really acutely, uh, I found very interesting and, and challenging for myself, and I wanted to work in a specialty like that. And, and probably you know, some of the other things I mentioned around more critical care type specialties is what drew me to it. I think, uh, sort of interestingly, I've I've, I've then um, made more of my area cardiovascular disease prevention, um, which is not necessary on the acute side of things. Sometimes the journey takes yeah. forever; it does take you. Um, and I, um, I actually wasn't sure about doing a PhD, but um, I, I at, at the time, you know, started exploring. My my partner was still in training. Um, he, he's a surgeon in, in background. Um, so I thought, you know, well, let's try this PhD thing out. And funnily enough, I, I um, got involved with some people um, who got interested in public health and I did a PhD in international public health um, and ended up being based in India for some time and developing a, a prevention program suitable for low-income settings. So that got me <laughs> interested in and more the preventive piece um, and, and, and where, where I've stayed interested, I, I suppose. So that's how I've sort of got to where I've got, but it definitely wasn't something I knew about when I was a medical student. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's reassuring for us, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, I think I, I was definitely on the, on the uh, wanting to do the appendectomies when I was an intern. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> very far from where I am now <laughs> absolutely yeah um you've got a really a really interesting and inspiring uh career um you know and it seems like you've just I don't know it seems like you've done everything <laughs> <laughs> um and you know in particular um it seems like you've done a lot in terms of like uh in terms of public health and in terms of uh really working to advocate uh, both for women and just in general in terms of um, helping with diagnosis and prevention of conditions. Um, so do you have any sort of advice for current medical students or, you know, junior doctors on how best to go about um, with advocating for prevention and just for equality within the medical system? Look, I think that medical students um, can do a lot in that area, and I think that that's fantastic that there are um, many medical students that are, are passionate about it. I mm. I would encourage medical students to stay passionate about it. I, 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 I think um, public health, and gosh, and more so now, I mean, I think that people have understood the, the um, strengths of public health in this, you know, incredibly... Uh, uh, amazing 2020, so to speak, um, but really understanding public health and what it can do for our patients and our population is really something um, we can all do and be part of. But I remember early on when I started um, doing my PhD in, in international public health, though I have to say I was challenged by the fact that um, as a doctor, I was trained to look after individuals, but public health is not about looking after the individual. It's about looking after populations. Mm. And, I, and I found it actually, you know, weirdly conflicting nearly in my head because on one hand, you know, as a, as a doctor, you want to get the best for your patient. And there's all these flash new technologies and expensive medicines which then, when you think about public health and prevention, you know, you can't, the money isn't 
unending. Um, and one had to start thinking about, you know, how does one make those decisions for the population? Um, we can't, I mean, I, I mentioned this because I think it's even going to be a, a larger challenge for, for people coming through now to deal with the, you know, constant um, jumps in technology and trying to judge which jumps in technology are really going to bring better uh, health outcomes and experiences for our patients and which of them are, you know, just one of those things and perhaps not uh, worth us spending our time and money on. And, I, and, and that is something I think the medical profession hasn't had to deal with as much um, up to this time. But I think for future medical doctors, they need to be part of that conversation because as your patient's advocate, you need to help make those decisions about, you know, what we should be prioritising, what we should be paying for with our increasingly precious um, health dollar. Um, I don't want to lay too much on the poor uh, medical student early doctors, but I do think a really good understanding of um, public health, health services, how all these things work um, is important for us to be able to do the best by our patients, which I think is still the bottom line. I, I always say to people, you know, at least being a doctor is simple from that point of view because, I mean, really, you know, it's really only about making sure we have uh, good patient outcomes and, and good patient experiences and they are able to maintain good qualities of life. So at least I'm not worried about um, too many other uh, things as being the different goals yeah. that we can clearly unite on those. Mm. Um, did you find a way to sort of resolve that conflict in your head about, you know, working on an individual's health versus the population's health more as a holistic way? Yeah, I work in both of those areas. I still a clinical doctor and um, I, I, I still love medicine. I still love being a doctor and, and I get to, to look after patients um, and, I, and, you know, I, I do do that. But um, I also work uh, in public health. I, I work to drive the evidence uh, around developing you know, good preventative strategies. I, I work to uh, inform policy and inform guidelines and, and, you know, they're the goals of my research work. And, and so um, in my head, I can try to contribute to both, but in, in different, different ways, uh, mm. I suppose. I, I, I don't think, though, you have to do it that way, obviously. I mean, we all have to find our ways. Uh, of doing those things but I can tell you that each half of my lives so called keep my feet on the ground in the other half and what does that mean I think that it is useful you know patients are sensible too and 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 they don't want to run down pathways where they're taking a whole lot of um, expensive medicines for much not much return if it increases their quality of life and I I very much understand the the numbers so you know I know that if they can only get a small improvement they're going to have more side effects of the treatment and it's going to impact their quality of life and actual quality of life is more important for them then you know it, it, it's 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 something I can explain to them and we can talk through so I think it's helpful 
uh, my sort of that research and preventive um, health background to be able to talk through that with them. On the other side of things, you know, I see prevention policy being written that is completely impractical and not easily implementable because it doesn't take account of the patients and the consumers. Um, and so equally, I, I, you know, I, I can help say, well, have we talked to, to patients about this? Do you really think this is going to work? Are you really going to be able to make everybody do X, Y or Z? I think that it is important that more and more people are working across that sort of what I say clinical academic gap um, or, or the clinical public health or work in a combination of, you know, things in government roles and health service roles as well as clinical roles. So um, maybe the future is also doing sort of more of those cross-disciplinary type roles. Mm. It seems your solution was to keep a foot very firmly planted in both camps and be the bridge yourself. So I think that's worked well for you. <laughs> Some people would say it's easier to fall off. Um, <laughs> you fall in something. <laughs> the next question that I might ask is, do you have anything further that you would like to add um, on this topic or I guess you know, in medical school, we tend to throw around the term high yield quite a lot. <laughs> what is a big takeaway that medical students could take from this? Um, if you feel like there's something that um, really key that we haven't yet covered. Look, I have to say that you guys are pretty impressive and you covered a lot. <laughs> You've done your background research work. I think that that's great. Um, I, I, I think I will come back to that uh, unconscious bias um, and being aware of oneself and in one's environment as probably a, a key take home. I think that uh, I see many medical students that are open-minded, but I think that um, as we rush through our lives and, you know, just got to get through the work, it's very easy to just, you know, um, not necessarily forget, but... But, you know, just try to get through it. I um, mm. I uh, now, uh, obviously, as a more senior doctor, uh, I see the horrible uh, things of EMR. I see people copying the medical uh, history. They copy and paste and they paste it again and they paste it again and they put it into the And that indicates they haven't asked me history. And unfortunately, I've seen a number of mistakes that have therefore continued um, into the future because they haven't, you know, got it themselves. I have to say one thing I always still do is uh, spend time on my first assessment of a patient and mm. get my own uh, picture of what's going on. I mean, I do read the notes and I make sure I, I, I get a uh, an understanding of what has happened to that patient. But I make it a point of making sure that I um, am involved in that interaction with that patient. I chat to the patient. I get a feel of where they're coming from. Obviously, it's not a single assessment, but not only about their clinical characteristics and what diagnosis they have, it's also about what they actually want to see happen with these and things. And, and you know, it, it helps me, um, I suppose, partner with the patient in trying to work out, you know, how we're going to manage their condition. Because one thing I've also learned is there's nothing you cure here, so to speak. Uh, you very much partner and work with patients uh, 
in, in managing their, their condition. The majority of medicine is still managing chronic conditions. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if a lot of medical students are still sorry that I think they're going to cure the world. But maybe <laughs> but, uh, equally, I think many of them are very, very cognizant that, uh, you know, they're going to be partnering with their patients. It's a privilege to be able to do so. Yeah, I think that point you brought up about unconscious bias is so important because I think it's quite easy to lose sight of how unique each individual patient is in terms of their own characteristics and, you know, their parameters. So I think that that's a really, really valuable piece of advice to give us for our future practice. Absolutely. And I think that the idea of a therapeutic relationship being a partnership between the doctor and the patient is such a great way of viewing it. Um, this year, I've definitely learned more about the importance of viewing patients as so much more than their medical issues. And I think it's really essential that we view patients as whole people and think about their lives and their relationships rather than just focusing on their pathology, which can really be quite dehumanising. It's also something for you guys as doctors, though, because I mean, I, 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 I you know, Absolutely, medicine is stressful, and I think that uh, you know, doctors take it upon themselves to want to make sure that they're right, they, they get it right. Okay, I mean, we all want to get it right for our patients, but um, it, we're human too, and uh, I, I think that by thinking of it in that manner, that uh, we share responsibility um, with our patients in. Um, working out their conditions helps, I think, you as health providers as well be able to understand, um, you know, and, and contribute to that, but also get your patients to be able to understand and contribute to that. And it is a more successful way, I think, forward than, um, you know, doctor feeling like they have all the responsibility. You know, that's that's obviously hard and and and, and you know, Brings anxiety and stress, as we all know, um, mm. being doctors. The other thing I would say um, is it's really important to discuss it with your colleagues. Um, I, I'm, I'm lucky I, I work in a large department, but on the other hand, I've also had many friends from my days at medical school, which I still very much keep and reach out to. It... Um, mm. You know, of course, one has to keep confidentiality amongst the patients we look after, but sometimes we need help from working out cases in, in groups, uh, you know, either in sessions that we discuss cases or we run things by people that are more experienced or even have just had different experiences or even just getting a second opinion. It, it's, it's, you can do that both formally and informally. You can ask patients whether they would um, mind if you get second opinions or you can discuss these things but another thing I would very much encourage people to to consider um, both early and continuing through their medical career. Yeah that's really fantastic advice actually and I think it's really important to remember that it's not a one-person job and um, you know there's lots of other resources and other colleagues that we can rely on for a bit of extra advice or extra help uh, if need be. Yeah, definitely. I guess there's just so much more support out there than we sometimes realise. And it's really helpful to keep that in mind when things are feeling pretty overwhelming or just a bit too difficult or above our level of expertise.
So I think that just about brings the end of our podcast, uh, exploring sex differences in the presentation and diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome. So thank you so, so much, Professor Chow, for joining us and volunteering your time in this capacity. It is incredibly valuable for us as medical students. So thank you so much. No worries. I, I um, again, am impressed at what you guys are doing and I hope that that was useful. And uh, yeah, I uh, wish you the best. Um, I'm sure you will do excellently. So that's the official end of the podcast. After we wrapped up the recording with Professor Chow, she asked us for feedback about any perceived barriers to women entering cardiology as a specialty. Both of us are quite early in our medical degrees and haven't had much clinical placement or much interaction with cardiologists beyond lectures, so we would love to hear any thoughts our listeners might have about this. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could reach out to us to express your opinions about why there are fewer women in the field of cardiology as it's only by identifying and discussing potential barriers that we can in turn overcome them. We would once again like to thank Professor Chow for generously volunteering her time to join us today to discuss this important topic. To our listeners, we hope today's podcast has been helpful and feel free to reach out to MedFem to discuss the podcast further if you so wish. Have a great day, everyone.